Welcome to Tanakh Daily, a Congregation Ahavas Torah initiative. Today, we are picking up with the 12th parak of Shmuel Bet, which records the fallout of David's sin with Bathsheba in the previous parak. Hashem sends a prophet, Natan, to rebuke David, but Natan Navi does this in an ingenious way. He comes to David and he tells him a story as if he's reporting something that truly took place and he's asking for David's opinion or asking David to judge the case in some way. And he tells him that there's a man who's very wealthy, lacking for nothing, while his neighbor is very poor and has just one lamb. And this poor man loved the lamb, the lamb tended to care. And one day a traveler arrived to this town where the poor man and the wealthy man lived. And the wealthy man wanted to host this guest, and to serve him meat. But he didn't want to waste one of his own animals, so he takes his neighbors one precious sheep, one precious lamb, and slaughters it instead. David, hearing this account, is absolutely outraged. He's incensed. He says, this man deserves to die. He should pay back the lamb fourfold, since he was so cruel in acting this way. And Natan then reveals that this is really just a metaphor for David's behavior regarding Uriah. And he does so with the famous and penetrating words, Ata Haish. You are this man, David. You are the rich man who robbed the poor Uriah of his one beloved sheep, the Nimshal being, of course, Bathsheba. It's worth noting here that the mushal and the nimshal actually, uh, the signified, the signifier, the metaphor, and that which it is referencing, don't perfectly line up. Yes, David is the rich man, Uriah is the poor man, and Bathsheba is the lamb. But in the story, the rich man doesn't kill the poor man, he kills the lamb, right? Uh, tormenting the poor man, who ultimately survives. Plus, uh, there's the matter of the visitor with no obvious analog in reality. And this kind of leads into a, a broader discussion about mashal, about metaphor throughout Tanakh. Rambam writes in Mor Nevuchim that there are different types of metaphors. There's one type of metaphor where every single detail signifies something in reality. And there are other types of metaphors. There's another type of metaphor where the details are just meant to flesh out the world of the metaphor to kind of give it its, its fullness. But the individual elements of the metaphor don't all have significance. The whole metaphor is meant to deliver just really one message. He says regarding Shir Hashirim, not every element has to represent something in Jewish history and the relationship between Hashem and the Jewish people. The whole thing is a metaphor for the love that we are meant to feel towards Hashem. And so the same is, is true here. Right, Natan is masterfully employing this metaphor to highlight how David has everything in the world, and Hashem has given David unparalleled, unending success, and yet he did not hesitate to rob someone of much humbler means, of, of the one precious thing in their lives. Then, uh, the Navi explains to David that as a result of, uh, of, uh, of, this, um, uh, of his action here, the sword will never depart from his house. He's going to have to deal with strife for the rest of his life, uh, and he will uh, uh, have to fight uh, uh, uprisings within his home over the throne, and David's own wives will be taken by others in a very public way. And hearing this uh, rebuke and the uh, impending punishment, David responds, Chatasi Lashem. I have sinned to God. That's it. 
And I say this not critically, but in praise of David, even, even when Shaul would apologize, for example, to use him as our uh, pretty consistent foil here, um, when David would apologize, would, would, would uh, acknowledge a shortcoming, he'd follow it up with explanations and excuses. David owns his mistakes directly. I have sinned to God. It's a very sincere outpouring of tshuva and a real model of sincere repentance. So the, the kind of the, 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 the bold words in this parak are atahaish. That's the, the charge of, of Natan HaNavi. And David responds, chatasi lashem. I have sinned to God. And because of David's very sincere tshuva, uh, Natan tells David that he is not going to die. David's not going to die, but nonetheless, he is going to be punished by all the things that he's enumerated. And in addition to that, the child that he is going to bear together with, with Bathsheba is not going to survive. And then the prophet, the Navi, leaves. We then learn that the baby, which apparently has been born in the interim, timing is not made clear here, but the baby is born and is very sick. David fasts, he prays, he cries for the baby, but ultimately it's to no avail, and the child uh, does succumb to its sickness and dies. David's servants are too afraid to deliver the news to David, figuring that it's going to completely destroy him, because while the baby was, was sick, while the baby uh, was, was in this state of, of, of being unwell, David was fasting, and David was crying, and David was calling out to Hashem, and he was completely torn up by the suffering of this child and, the, and its impending death. And then David realizes that his servants have become reticent. They didn't want to tell him, uh, what happened to the child? And David asks, uh, is, it, is it the case that the child has died? And they tell him, yes, the baby has, has in fact died. Now, what happens next is kind of odd. Uh, David then gets up from his crying and mourning. He doesn't, doesn't become uh, more severe as we would have anticipated and his servants anticipated, but actually David's mourning now stops and he gets up and he cleans himself, he washes himself, he anoints himself and kind of moves on uh, with life as normal. And the servants want to know, they, they ask for an explanation. David, why is it that before you were so upset and suddenly now when the moment came, this, this terrible outcome actually has come to fruition, now you're able to carry on. And David says, you know, when he was alive, there was a, a point to my calling out and, and mourning, or rather uh, fasting and praying and crying. Now that he has passed on, uh, it's beyond my control, and I cannot bring him back to me, but one day I shall return to him. This response makes David almost seem kind of like a cold rationalist. There's no utility to mourning. You cry when someone's alive, but once they've passed, there's nothing more you can do. He seems so, uh, it, it seems very cold and, de- and, and, right, and detached and uh, scientific. Um, however, that's not consistent with David's activities in other places, with David's behavior elsewhere. For example, the way he mourns over Yonatan and Shaul and Avner, uh, we know that David mourns people. He didn't say in those cases, well, when they were alive, I was going to, uh, I daven on their behalf, but now that they're gone, there's nothing more I can do. So he obviously doesn't have this posture towards all sorts of um, uh, situations of mourning and death. And, and we're left to infer that David earnestly tried to save this child's life. 
and, and was invested in trying to uh, salvage, if possible, uh, the life of this child. But it could be that with this child's passing, there is also laid over a sense of, of grief, a sense of relief. I know that sounds kind of cruel, but remember, this child would have been an enduring symbol of David's shame. And perhaps with his passing, David is ready to move beyond this chapter of his life, even though, of course, we know the implications of what he has done is going to continue to haunt him for the rest of his life. In an interesting turn of events, we then learn that David comforts Bathsheba regarding the loss of this child. And then once again, they are together and she bears another child named Shlomo, who God calls Yedidya, the beloved of God. So from this union, which... Uh, is a real black mark on David's reign, uh, which uh, brought and continues to bring real tragedy to David's house. From this very union comes Shlomo, uh, the great uh, king, uh, king of Israel, the great philosopher, poet, king of Israel, who will build the Beis Hamikdash, who's uh, you know doesn't doesn't need more approbation uh, than that. It's amazing that it's a result of this very union, which causes us perhaps to think again about how we construe the events that took place earlier. And so the story, uh, in a certain respect, has at least one extremely positive outcome. We then learn that Yoav is about to capture the capital city of Ammon, Rabat, B'nai Ammon. Uh, by the way, it's a city, uh, is uh, the capital of, of Jordan today, Amman, and those Rabat, B'nai Ammon, Amman, these are etymologically linked. David goes and he leads the final charge <coughs> and defeats uh, the enemy, uh, in uh, Rabat B'nei Amon, and then returns to Yerushalayim. And so we have this kind of perfect inclusio, starting and ending with Batsheva, the, starting and ending the Batsheva story, uh, which takes place in chapters Yud Aleph and Yud Bet, uh, with the Battle of Amon. However, in the beginning, David sends Yoav, Yoav is doing the fighting, David is resting in Yerushalayim, and we conclude the story with David going and playing a role uh, in fighting uh, the battle and, and uh, returning victorious, ultimately, to Yerushalayim. And so there's this kind of perfect parallel on both sides of the story. And certainly the thread that we pulled out yesterday, the, 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 our focus was um, this kind of failing of David to have uh, gotten involved in the battle, this idea that David was outsourcing all these responsibilities, sending others to do all of his bidding. Uh, so the fact that ultimately, at the end of the story, he goes to the battle, uh, and only returns to Yerushalayim once the battle has been decided, and victoriously so. So that, of course, is, I think, meant to suggest a kind of resolution, a kind of growth as a result of this whole um, rather dark episode. And I'll end <clears throat> with a question for your consideration, and, uh, and that is the following. Why is it that Shaul's failure to destroy Amalek leads Hashem to immediately tear away the kingdom from him, and to do so with complete finality, while David's sin with Bathsheba is punished very, very harshly, but the kingship remains with David and his family. Give that some thought. That's it for today. Chazak ve'amatz and happy learning.